Welcome to Cybercast 2020. I'm your host, James Mersall. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by the National Urban Security Technology Laboratory Director, Ms. Alice Hong. Based in New York City, the National Urban Security Technology Laboratory, or New Steel, is DHS's hub for cutting-edge disaster response and recovery research and development, working closely with first responders to design new technologies for them, as well as test commercially available products. We talk with Alice about how New Steel conducts those tests, as well as some success stories from the testing process. We also discuss New Steel's role in training exercises, including, but not limited to, preparing for the early minutes, hours, and days following a radiological or nuclear incident ensuring that state and local officials can respond as quickly and effectively as possible to an incident that we hope will never happen, but must be prepared for if it does. Finally, we turn to a topic on everyone's minds right now, the COVID-19 pandemic, and New Steel's work in testing personal protective equipment and helping first responders find the right tools in this crisis. Thank you for joining us, Alice. Let's get started. Thank you so much for having me today first. And yes, I am the lab director of the National Urban Security Technology Laboratory. It's pronounced by its acronym, New Steel. And we're DHS Science and Technology Directorate's first responder focused lab located here in New York City. The mission of our lab is to test and evaluate tools and technologies that will ultimately end up in the hands of state and local first responders in support of the Homeland Security mission. Our test and evaluation work addresses a broad range of threats, hazards, and capabilities. We're looking at everything from tactical eyewear and blast-resistant trash receptacles to much more complex threat detection technologies such as counter-UAS or counter-drone systems and radiation portal monitors, for instance. In addition to our test and evaluation efforts, we also manage a pretty significant research and development program focused on response and recovery from radiological and nuclear incidents. Our RADNUC response and recovery program dovetails really well, though, with our first responder focus because the program has primarily focused on the tools that state and locals need in the first minutes, hours, and potentially days following a radiological or nuclear incident before the federal response assets actually arrive. But at the end of the day, whether it's our test and evaluation work or our radiological nuclear response and recovery R&D projects, all of our work really addresses the needs of state and local first responders. They're really at the core of everything we do. That's great to hear, and I can see the importance of that mission. So how does New Steel work closely with first responders to test emerging technologies and other tools? First, I should mention that New Steel's door is always open to our first responder partners and customers. Any given week, you'll see uniformed and non-uniformed first responders inside our lab participating in everything from focus groups, trainings, tests, or just stopping by to chat and let us know what's going on in their world and for us to share what we're doing. They can also just easily pick up the phone and call us at any time with their technology questions. You know, maybe they saw cool technology at a meeting and want to ask our thoughts on it, or even have us test it before they potentially buy it. Or maybe they call because they already actually bought something. It's not working out quite as they had hoped. And so they need our support to optimize that particular deployment of this tool. In any case, our scientists and engineers work side by side with first responders and first responders of really various disciplines, law enforcement, fire, EMS, from all around the country to plan and execute tests of both emerging and commercially available tools and technologies. For any given technology evaluation, we work really closely with responders to really understand how a particular tool or technology could be most successfully deployed for their specific use cases. So you might think, you know, what does this actually entail? 
So it involves, you know, gathering feedback from responders on topics ranging from what challenges, technology related or not, they're facing in the field to learning what the various use cases and scenarios are in which responders will actually deploy those tools. So can we test a system to vendor specifications? Yes, absolutely, sure. But I believe our true value proposition lies in our close collaborations with first responders to test and evaluate the operational effectiveness of those tools, specifically looking at the usability and suitability of the tools for the actual end user in their respective field operations. And I think this really points to one of the key issues we're trying to tackle. That is the challenge of operational integration and sustainment of technologies by first responders. I like to think that our lab New Steel, we act as a trusted broker between the technology development community and the technology end users or first responders. We're working closely with first responders to understand their needs and then relaying that information back to the technology vendors so that they can ultimately build better products for them. On the flip side of that, our staff works really, really hard to keep their fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the technology development world. And then we share what we know with our first responder partners. In this role, I think one of the biggest values that we bring to the table is the fact that New Steel acts as an independent, objective broker working on behalf of the first responder community without any sort of bias or ties to technology vendors. As I mentioned earlier, we look at both emerging and commercially available technologies. And on the emerging side, we frequently conduct what we call operational field assessments and um, other operational experimentation events where we assess DHS-developed prototypes to validate requirements. That is, we want to answer the question, did the vendor actually build the right thing? Or even more simply put, did they meet user requirements and needs? To answer these questions, we design tests of the systems with end users and then collect their feedback to help ensure that the technology developer has actually delivered the right technology solutions to meet end user needs. The value, in my opinion, on this is twofold. First, it gives our first responder evaluators access to emerging technology so that they can get a first-hand look at what's potentially coming down the pike. And second, and I think more importantly, they have the ability to provide feedback that can inform changes and enhancements to those technologies and tools before they actually hit the market. This is really a win-win for both first responders and the technology developers. First responders get the optimal product that they want and need, and then vendors develop a product that truly meets customer requirements, enabling improved potential for them for returns on their investment. So that all applies to the test of prototype technologies that are still undergoing development. But we also test a bunch of commercial off-the-shelf products too. Our SAVER program, and that stands for System Assessment and Validation for Emergency Responders, but our SAVER program is one of our most unique and enduring programs focused on commercially available technologies. Through SAVER, we provide the first responder community with published reports that we frequently refer to as kind of like consumer reports for first responders. I think everybody's pretty familiar with the consumer reports format. We make that comparison, though, because our SAVER reports help responders understand what technologies are out there in the marketplace and how they perform in realistic conditions. And just as some background to better understand SAVER's value, the technology and equipment that first responders need is often highly complex, and a lot of these technologies are rapidly evolving. 
And unfortunately, state and local agencies, especially the smaller ones, often don't have the specialized technical expertise to make the most informed technology purchase decisions. For example, you know, should they purchase widget A or widget B or widget C? They all seem kind of similar. Which one's going to work best for the particular job? Our saver reports are supposed to take some of the guesswork out of that. They provide responders with important criteria to consider, and then we conduct an evaluation of the technology based on that criteria. And by the way, these criteria come straight from the responder community through our focus groups. So while we don't recommend widget A or B or widget C, we do look at the different technologies and evaluate them against these criteria. Agencies can then compare the information against their agency-specific needs and priorities to select the product that will best meet their needs and requirements. You know, look, everyone, I think, knows that state and local budgets are always tight. And given the current environment especially, they'll probably only get tighter. That being said, (laughs) our team recognizes that given limited resources, every purchase is an important investment and should be driven by informed decision-making. SAVER reports equip first responders with the insight and data to reach that informed decision. For these reasons, I think responder agencies should really look to SAVER as their first stop for researching technology solutions. I should mention we have over a thousand reports in our SAVER document library. It's on the DHS SNT website, but since the URL for that is way too long to repeat here, you can just Google DHS SAVER to visit our library of SAVER reports. Just as a general heads up, some SAVER projects that we have on the horizon include assessments of body armor for women in law enforcement. And I did say women in law enforcement, so that's special. We're also going to have some assessments on Raman spectrometers for chemical ID in the field, night vision goggles, and I think wireless surveillance cameras is another one we have coming up. I do also want to point out that we have many other technology evaluation activities that fall outside of operational field assessments of DHS-developed technology, prototypes, and the SAVER program that I just mentioned. There are many discrete projects that are initiated specifically at the request of our federal, state, and local partners to test a wide range of technologies. These tests are customized typically to meet those specific partners' specific objectives and run the gamut from conducting more simple scenario-based demonstrations to much more rigorous characterization and performance tests of technologies. It's all great to hear. I mean, I think about how often I hear from either the technology or security fields or both, you know, the importance of making smart, sound investments on tight budgets. And it sounds like New Steel's work really goes to promoting that. So in terms of the tests that you've conducted, what success stories can you tell us about? So the New Steel team recently conducted an operational field assessment at the Coast Guard's Aviation Technical Training Center on two enhanced rescue hoist gloves. These gloves are the ones that rescue helicopter hoist operators wear when they're doing a rescue operation. They're supposed to protect their hands, especially their palms, when guiding the hoist cable during those rescue operations. Our team worked with a group of responders from fire services and members of the uniform services to assess the usability of those gloves. The gloves themselves were supposed to have improved durability and longevity while also allowing for enough dexterity for responders engaged in hoist-based rescue. The two prototype designs were tested using training hoists under simulated operational conditions, such as mechanically generated wind and rain. 
And while our test teams executed the scenarios, our data collection teams gathered and documented feedback from the responders to assess if the gloves met operational requirements. As part of the feedback process, responders identified potential improvements that could be made to the gloves before they're finalized and hit the commercial market. This feedback was critically important, though, because it uncovered some concerns with the prototype design. Had the prototype gone to market as it was, it could have had impacts on responders' ability to conduct rescue operations. Specifically, the prototype used a new low-friction material on the palms of the gloves that is supposed to reduce wear while handling the hoist. While this was seen as an improvement, the responder participants indicated also that they need that friction for some of their associated activities, such as scooting along the floor when they're maneuvering around in a helicopter. So at the end of the day, the evaluators were able to provide pointed suggestions to modify the glove design, specifically with strategically positioned and shaped leather, rubber, similar material pads near the heel of the hand, enabling the successful development of a more relevant product for the first responder community. The hoist glove project, in my opinion, was a success because it enabled the successful development of a more relevant product for the first responder community. That is, the user was going to get a superior product thanks to the test. And the vendor, as a result of the feedback from the test, was going to enhance their product to ensure it would work as users wanted, enabling also successful sales for them. Another effort that I want to highlight is our work in the test and evaluation activities associated with countering small unmanned aircraft systems, or UAS, but most popularly referred to as drones. Everybody's heard of drones. Our work specifically focuses, though, on the assessment of systems countering nefarious drones. The exponential increase in the availability and affordability of commercial drones and the advances in their capability have created more opportunities for both legitimate and nefarious uses of these systems. While the possibilities for the beneficial use of drones seems endless, the possibilities for use of drones as a threat is also ever-growing and has incited the development of a flurry of new countermeasures. Since 2016, our lab has been assessing the performance as well as the suitability of these systems for a variety of homeland security applications and settings. In the process, we've learned a lot everything from best practices related to test methodology to learning how these systems work in different operational settings. One of our big successes in this area, though, that I, I can actually mention in this podcast is our counter unmanned aircraft systems or counter UAS technology guide, which was recently published. Our team developed this guide to educate the national first responder community on counter UAS technology by providing basic scientific and engineering information on the various sensor types and methods that are commonly employed in these systems, as well as explaining the key components that enable counter UAS operations. This is pretty significant because first responder agencies are increasingly saturated with sales pitches and demos of these systems. So we really wanted to put out something that would help them get past some of that vendor marketing and equip them with some of the basic but really important technical knowledge that can help them determine what types of systems might work best for their organization and particular missions. You can find the tech guide by Googling CUAS technology guide. Sounds like a very important development. It sounds like that's definitely been part of the culmination of a four-year effort to make sure that responders are getting the right technologies they need to counter this growing threat. Absolutely. I know you mentioned radiological nuclear threats and how New Steel works in responding to those. What work are you doing with regards to those threats? 
Well, I'm glad you asked because New Steel has an entire portfolio dedicated to radiological and nuclear recovery R&D, as I mentioned earlier. New Steel's focus is to use a colloquial term, right of boom, which means after an incident has already happened. R&D for interdiction and detection for incident prevention is actually handled by a different part of DHS that I won't go into here. But our R&D projects aim to improve radiological response capabilities from the state and local to federal levels. Our projects also aim to advance response agencies' understanding of the impacts and risks associated with the Brad Nuke incident. The program currently focuses really on the minutes, the hours, and days following a radiological or nuclear incident. This is really a critical time when first responders have to initiate life-saving rescue operations, characterize the incident, and also manage the scene before specialized state and federal assets arrive. Our program is focused on really developing the technologies, tools, and knowledge products that responders can integrate into their preparedness activities for the purpose of supporting effective response and recovery. What technologies or tools has New Steel developed to mitigate effects of such an event? Our lab's Radnuke Response and Recovery Team developed what's called the RDD Response Guidance, planning for the first 100 minutes. By the way, RDD is short for a radiological dispersal device and is commonly referred to as, we all know it pretty much as dirty bomb, right? So the RDD guidance was developed to help the emergency response community plan for how to effectively respond to an RDD in the first 100 minutes following detonation. We co-published this work in collaboration with our partners at FEMA and the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. And the guidance is based on 30 plus years of research at the Department of Energy. Our New Steel team worked really closely with our interagency partners, as well as state and local responders to develop the guidance and specifically guidance that would help them prepare to execute life safety rescue operations, as well as issue protective action recommendations and begin to measure and map radiological contamination. Also, the RDD guidance provides information that enhances local agencies' ability to make decisions regarding emergency response, as well as health and safety during the initial period following an RDD detonation before outside federal support arrives. As a supplement to the RDD guidance, associated RDD animations were created as training aids. These are essentially short animated clips, maybe picture video game style graphics and narration. And these were intended to help first responders visualize and understand the guidance, especially to better understand the scientific principles behind it. Although RDD incidents can be highly technical and complex, these animations deliver an easy-to-understand training resource for emergency planners and first responders. You can find the animations on DHS's official government website and on our YouTube channel. More simply, though, you could just Google RDD animations, and it'll literally be the first result. Another tool that I want to highlight on the RADNUC side is a lab characterization study that we did to optimize radioactive contamination screening at community reception centers. What is a community reception center? Well, for our purposes, it is not a place to have a wedding reception, but it's a place where people who think they might be contaminated can go following a radiological release to avoid overwhelming emergency rooms. 
It could be a high school gym or just a large space specifically set aside for contamination screening of the general public. The main goal of these centers, though, is to reassure the many thousands of people who are not contaminated, while also finding the relatively few people who require decontamination and treatment. Each center has several radiation portal monitors. These look like walk-through metal detectors, essentially. If a person walking through one of the monitors has radioactive material on them, the operator will receive an alarm. If someone passes through and there's no alarm, they can rest assured that they are not contaminated. But the challenge lies in the fact that the portal monitors have to be spaced far enough apart to avoid situations where radioactivity on one contaminated person at a portal monitor causes alarms to set off for other portal monitors where other non-contaminated people are being screened. As you can guess, this could be very problematic. Clearly, mistaken alarms on uncontaminated people would undermine the reassurance goal of the centers entirely. So working with our partners at New York City's fire department, our lab conducted research to provide recommendations on the optimal configuration of these radiation detectors in these centers to avoid mistaken alarms, as well as maximize throughput and optimize the use of resources, equipment, and personnel at these centers. A community reception center is something that I hope we never have to implement, but if it is ever needed, our recommendations will be put to good use for sure. I agree. It sounds like this part of New Steel's mission is the sort of thing that you hope will never be needed, but obviously if it is needed, it's good to know that it's in place beforehand and that everything has been properly tested for a rapid response. So what are some of the highlights of the training exercises that New Steel has led with first responders, since you've mentioned coordinating with them so much as part of New Steel's mission? So our lab has supported training and exercises for literally thousands of state and local first responders throughout the New York City metro area. A big part of our responder training and exercise program is to help first responder agencies with their radiation detection equipment. Most state and local agencies don't have a nuclear regulatory license, so they don't have the ability to hold radioactive materials. Our lab does have a license, so we provide our radiation sources for detection-related trainings and exercises. On top of providing the physical radiation sources, we act as a technical advisor on the use of those radioactive materials during those training events and exercises. In doing this, our radiation safety experts manage and also monitor the safe use of radioactive sources and also advise on the operational usage of radiation detection equipment. So you can feel safe knowing that our state and local first responders know how their detection equipment works because they're training with real radioactive materials that we provide. How have these trainings improved their effectiveness? The use of actual radioactive materials to create real radiation fields during trainings and exercises increases the effectiveness of these events by providing safe but also realistic levels of radiation for detection. You can't see, feel, or smell radiation. So if you're a first responder, you really need to have real radiation sources to be able to detect something during a training. Otherwise, it's just make-believe or pretend. In addition to this, responders aren't just concerned with detecting radiation. They're also concerned with reducing the impact of these events and facilitating response and recovery. So while first responder trainers conduct sessions addressing topics like the use of detection equipment, our team is also there not just with their radioactive sources, but also we're supporting these events as subject matter experts, answering any related questions for students as well as the trainers related to not just radiation and radiation detection, but also radiological nuclear response and recovery, making them all around 
better prepared to deal with rad nuke detection as well as response and recovery. We also support trainings and exercises, though, that have absolutely nothing to do with radiation detection. For instance, some of our New York City first responder agency partners requested our support for a multi-agency active shooter exercise that they were planning specifically at Grand Central Terminal. For those who are not familiar, Grand Central is one of the busiest train stations in the country with up to a million visitors a day. And so this exercise took place in the wee hours before dawn on a Sunday morning for that very reason. While New York City first responders exercise their tactics, techniques, and procedures for a response to an active shooter scenario, our lab was focused on the technology insertion and evaluation portion of the event. The participating New York City agencies requested that we integrate specific technologies into the exercise to assess their functional performance and to assess their potential for improving first responder active shooter preparedness and response. The assessment included tools with capabilities in areas that included blue force tracking, gunshot detection, facial recognition, patient tracking, as well as a few others. But all of the technologies were integrated into the exercise by our lab and then used by exercise participants to determine their effectiveness in an active shooter scenario type response. An after action report summarized the detailed technology performance, as well as documented a variety of different lessons learned and recommendations on where and how the technologies could be most useful in improving active shooter response. And finally, I wanted to ask, I think it's the issue on everyone's minds right now. As a lab based in New York City, is New Steel part of the COVID-19 response effort? And if so, what technologies are you developing as part of that effort? So while the lab is not directly participating in COVID-19 response activities, the technologies, protective gear and equipment that our lab has already assessed are being used every day by first responders on the front lines of COVID-19, which by the way, I should make a quick shout out and put out a big thank you to our first responders, nurses and doctors on the front lines of this pandemic, especially here in New York City. But back to your question, we do continuously receive inquiries from our first responder customers wanting information on tools and technologies related to pandemic response. First responder agencies are overwhelmed with vendors claiming they can help them if they just buy their product. Our customers know, though, that they can just pick up the phone, call us and say, hey, I've got a vendor trying to sell me XYZ. Is this legit or is it phony? Or I need something that does A, B, and C. Is there something out there that does that? We could be fielding questions such as, can vendor X's thermal imagers be used to actually detect coronavirus? Or we could be asked something like to provide information on decontamination methods for medical vehicles, which by the way, is actually a pass saver report. But whatever it is, our partners know that they can reach out to us and feel confident that we will provide them objective advice that is backed by science and not just relying on vendor claims. I do want to highlight that we did just publish a new saver report on in-suit communications equipment that Although the assessment wasn't conducted with COVID-19 in mind, these technologies can definitely have applicability to pandemic response. Emergency responders wearing fully encapsulated protective gear, like those who are familiar with Class A hazmat suits, they need the ability to communicate during response activities. We conducted an operational assessment of in-suit communications equipment that allows responders to more easily use push-to-talk tactical radios and other communications equipment under fully encapsulated PPE, while also wearing an SCBA or self-contained breathing apparatus. The SAVER report provides responders with results 
from our assessment and includes the pluses and minuses of about six different products that emergency response agencies could consider when purchasing in-suit communications equipment for hazmat response. First responders have definitely been using the full Class A hazmat gear for COVID response. So you can see how this report could inform public safety agencies' decisions on which communications equipment would work best with their suits. One last thing that I do want to mention is the work that's being done by our sister laboratory, the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasures Center, also known as the NBAC. It's in Frederick, Maryland. They've been conducting some breakthrough research on coronavirus survivability and transmission. You may be familiar with some of their preliminary findings on the effects that UV light, humidity, and heat have on the virus. They continue to execute this very important work of uncovering the secrets of the coronavirus. And even with these initial findings, their research could have very profound impacts on how we respond to the virus going forward. So I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that as well. Great. I think those are all the questions we have. Again, I want to thank you for your time. It's great to hear about all the work that New Steel is doing. I can definitely see wide applications, both for the challenges of today and the hopefully not incidents of tomorrow. But if they come around, it sounds like we're very well prepared. Thanks so much, James. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing and leaving a review at iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasting content from. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. It is hosted by James Mersall, produced by Amy Kluber. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.